Today on episode number 275 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Melanie Sage, Nancy Smith, and Laurel Iverson-Hitchcock tell us how to write a book with people you met on Twitter. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I have three phenomenal guests joining me on today's episode, Melanie Sage, Nancy Smith, and Laurel Iverson-Hitchcock. Starting out, let's hear about Melanie. She's an assistant professor at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. She loves teaching with technology, innovating in the classroom, and inspiring learners to take healthy risks. She is the co-author of the text, Teaching Social Work with Digital Technology, and is director of the UB Institute on Healthy Engagement and Resilience with Technology, iHeartTech for short. As a child welfare researcher, the focus of her work is on ways that technology can best support foster youth, including understanding the skills they need for digital resilience and healthy online relationships. Nancy J. Smith is a licensed clinical social worker, professor, and dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Smith first began thinking and writing about technology and social work education and practice over 30 years ago, including integrating digital technology in teaching practice. However, in the last decade, she's been more systematically exploring the uses and implications of digital technologies for social work practice and education through her role as dean. And finally, Dr. Laurel Iverson Hitchcock is an associate professor in the Department of Social Work at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She completed her PhD in social work and MSW at the University of Alabama and has a master's in public health from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. She has been a licensed independent clinical social worker in Alabama since 2000. Dr. Hitchcock has over 10 years of experience as a social worker in the areas of healthcare and community mental health. Please see the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 275 for even more information about these three phenomenal individuals. But let me begin by welcoming them to the show. Melanie, Nancy, and Laurel, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. We're so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us on the show. I first got connected with you through Melanie, so thanks to Laurel and Nancy, I, I don't feel quite as close and bonded. <laughs> I, someone on Twitter, Melanie, said that we were similar. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I did. Somebody said our voices sound alike, so I asked Laurel and Nancy to listen for that. Okay. <laughs> well, it's so nice to be connected. I know one of the things we'll be talking just a touch about is the opportunities that Twitter has to connect us. and But we have lots more to share with us today, and we're going to start out looking at how this relationship between the three of you emerged, because you've done some incredible collaborative work. So Melanie, share a little bit about how you three got together and started doing this thing that you do. 
Yeah, we have a really fun origin story and we'd love to tell people about it because we all met on Twitter and we lived in very different places. I was in North Dakota, Laurel in Alabama and Nancy in Buffalo, New York. And we met just online and decided we were going to work together. So uh, we wrote a book and we wrote a little bit about this in our book. And I would just like to read you this first paragraph, if that's okay. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, it goes like this. We have no idea how many book collaborations begin on Twitter, but ours is probably not the only one. But let's back up. Before there was a book, there were a few social workers hanging out on Twitter and figuring out how to get connected to each other. Most were on Twitter, at least in part because of our shared interest in technology and its potential utilities for social work. Most of us did not have colleagues in our own schools who were interested in this intersection. Some of us had been playing with technology and social work for many years, like Linda Grobman, editor of New Social Work magazine. Some of us were innovating with new technologies, such as Jonathan Singer, who hosts the Social Work podcast. Few were deans of schools of social work, such as Nancy Smith. Many of us were junior faculty members. Most of us were trying to figure out the potential of this medium, and we found each other. So one part of our story here that we really enjoy sharing is that Twitter had sort of a democratizing impact across our ranks in that the small group of us that were pretty interested in technology and social work who are showing up in this space spanned uh, assistant professors, junior faculty to deans like Nancy. And we wouldn't normally meet up in uh, conference receptions because these aren't our natural kind of order of ranking group. But on Twitter, we were able to develop our knowledge about shared interests and working styles and ethos and approaches and realize that we just kind of really enjoyed the way that each of us were able to communicate and collaborate across that medium. And that brought us into real life spaces. Which one of you has been on Twitter the least amount of time? Do you know? I think that's probably me. Okay. Nancy has been our innovator. Ah, and what, mm-hmm. what, well, actually any of you could answer this question, but what do you remember about that first feeling of going up there? It's not, I mean, it's not a super complicated thing, but sometimes just the language of Twitter can be pretty intimidating. What, what do you remember about any of this? Like, whoa, I'm not, I don't quite know what I'm doing up here at first. I would say that was exactly it. I got involved with Twitter initially because a librarian at our school had talked me into a new assignment for my social policy class. I was looking for a way to jazz it up. And he said, oh, get on Twitter and let's do this with students. And I said, okay. And I just got on and I really had no clue what I was doing at all. And halfway through the semester, the students started interacting with policymakers in DC and nonprofit agencies locally. And I all of a sudden realized I could connect with these people too. And that's when I found academic Twitter and started reaching out to my colleagues. We have a hashtag that we use. It's hashtag SWTech. And that has really brought us together as a community in technology and social work. You know, the other thing I was just thinking about as you were describing that, Laurel, and th- this is Nancy, by the way, is I knew I was there for a while, but I don't think I really knew what to do with it. And I was following people, but mostly just reading. And, and at some point, I started to stumble across a few social workers. And I think the way I figured out how to use Twitter was by 
modeling myself after Dorley McCallie, who at that point was an MSW student in a social work program in New York City, but she was an older returning student and she'd actually worked in marketing for a decade before she went back to get her MSW and she'd been an MBA. And so she just had an amazing blog where she was talking about her experience as a student, but also just blogging about social work ideas. And I just watched how beautifully she integrated things from other areas, from websites and from her blog, but really did it in a relational sort of focus that I was able to start to figure it out by watching her. And and sort of in return, I was kind of mentoring her as she was new to the field of social work. So we just developed a relationship early on, which was a little, when I think about the the democratizing parts of this, that was really where it started to cross some of those boundaries because I was hanging out with her dean and at the same time she and I were working together and I ended up hiring her here at the school to coach some of our staff and faculty on how to use Twitter. Mm-hmm. So it really was finding somebody who knew what they were doing and sort of saying, oh, okay, this, this, is, this I can do. I didn't get that you could do this. I feel so much this tension that emerges when people share about their experiences. Some of them have fears that are very valid, very, I mean, all of our fears are valid, but you know, I mean, of course, I'm going to judge them and decide that their fears are valid in the sense of <laughs> there can be toxicity, there can be bullying, there's trolling, doxing, I mean, there's all kinds of trouble, yes, up there. But then some of that, that, that I don't want to say it's not valid, but I just wish for people in their lives that they could push through that that vulnerability that we need to have to make the kinds of connections that you have made. But then once you're there, you just say, I never would have had this without, like, without just being willing to look foolish. And, and I still remember a colleague, although I can't remember exactly who it was, but someone, the first time they were up on Twitter, they accidentally acted as in um, tagged, if you will, Ken Bain, you know, one of the wonderful higher ed authors. <laughs> and it was, you know, they thought that, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm never going to go up there again. And I said, <laughs> He just got on Twitter at the time. This is, you know, years ago, but he, he just got there himself and we could go back through his tweets. You know, we, we get up there and we, it feels clumsy and sometimes we are clumsy, but if you could push through that, there's so much beauty and richness and intimacy that I, I find, I I forgot who mentioned not having this at your institutions, but probably all three of you could. (laughs) I mean, the connections that it affords us to really tightly network and and build things with people that we share such things in common with. Yeah. We talk about this a lot in our work. Like, how do you do relational Twitter? What is it that uh, holds people together? And it's really about having that back and forth, but connecting with people's humanity. So, so many people, when they first get on Twitter, want to do the announcement thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I wrote a journal article, here it is, or I'm giving a lecture, here's my book. And that like, okay, that's sort of interesting, but that's not how we connect with people relationally. So, we talk a lot about what does it mean to be connected as humans across technology? And I think once people get that, it really informs and reforms the way that they think about having colleagues and developing relationships via technology. The technology is just the tool. We're just trying to do relationships like we would do in any other space. 
Yeah, this is Laurel. We go to conferences together quite frequently now, and people will come up to us, um, other attendees, and will ask, well, how did you get on Twitter? What did you do? And they'll pull up their Twitter account, and I've got my Twitter account, and I was like, well, let's start following each other. And I'm going to tweet you, and then I want you to tweet me back. And it's building that relationship. And once you figured out how to do it the first time, which I was able to do with Melanie and Nancy, then it's very easy to begin to do that with other people. And building that relationship means supporting their work, tweeting out their work, talking, asking questions, being vulnerable at times like you talk about, Bonnie. But also talking about sometimes your... um how cute your dog is yes. <laughs> or having like really good creative use of memes that demonstrate your personality or the emotion behind what you're trying to say. So, so we say all the time, it's, it's about like uh, showing your humanity that that's kind of what leads to connection and relationships, just like it does in a reception hall in a, at a conference. This is Nancy. You know, we have been talking a lot about what does it take to get people into Twitter and using it in the ways that we have. And I have to confess that, I think I've made a lot of mistakes with it. I've tried to work with our faculty here to get more people in. And mostly I try to work with a model of attraction and not not forcing anyone, but supporting them. But I, I think that one thing that I didn't really understand was that people would naturally go in really in some ways the way I started, which is just tr- treating it as a news feed mm-hmm. and reading things and then maybe just then broadcasting their stuff and not understanding more the importance of being human and being vulnerable. And I think, Bonnie, you said something that, you know, sort of caught my idea that we feel sort of incompetent here. And I mean, that's the challenge of technology is it changes so fast that even if you feel competent in one space, when you go into another one, you don't know what you're doing initially. And as academics, we felt that way as students, but we gradually, you know, quickly get to a place where we feel like experts in the things we know. And it's easy to forget that feeling like you don't know what you're doing is an important part of the discovery process when you're headed into new spaces. And technology really does challenge us to do that. So when people start with like, well, what do I do there? I say, well, you know, it's really okay to say, gee, I'm new. I feel clueless in this space. Mm-hmm. I would welcome any suggestions anyone have for how to get started. Boy, that's the best way to start because people want to help and they want to, you know, help someone else get into the space as opposed to going in and acting like I, I know how to do this already. We so much are taught, and maybe taught is the wrong word, but we, we think that in our disciplines, so in our, in our academics, we're, we're just molded to say, we know all this stuff. I mean, we know, we know this stuff in our little myopic world here, but we better command that. And we go to conferences, we have to wear the armor because we're going to get, or, or if we're going and writing our dissertations or whatever. But yet, it's not really a great way to live because there's two, two real flaws, and I'm sure there's more than two, but I, I like to just keep my number of points I'm going to make to a minimum so I don't forget them. And I probably already am forgetting them right now. So the first one would be that we don't get to learn then. Because Nancy, if I, if I just think that as a dean or as a faculty member, I'm supposed to know all this stuff, then I just shut off that source for more learning. And then I did forget what the second point was, but I'm sure one of you can find it for me. So, so I, can't, I can't learn if I'm not willing to do, oh, no, I know what it is. I, I came back. I circled back. I gained my confidence back. We miss the empathy we could otherwise have for students. We forget what it is like to feel completely out of our elements. I just got back from a 
HSI, Hispanic Serving Institutions Training, and just am just once again recognizing the importance of helping our students feel you belong here. Yes, I have these high expectations. Yes, you can do more than you could ever think is possible. So we're not going to lower those standards, but we're going to let you know you absolutely can do this. And so we, if we don't know what that feeling is like to go, I don't belong here. I don't know what I'm doing. This is embarrassing. We're not going to really be able to serve our students as well. So anyway, I, I'll open it up for anyone else who yeah. wants to share about that, that vulnerability and that being, um, becoming a student again. Absolutely. We talk about that a lot that we ask our students to be vulnerable and to be okay with not knowing. And when students get too perfectionistic on us, we go like, get over it. You're learning. You're here to learn. And then and then we're not so good always at modeling that experimenting and playfulness. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that this is one of the things you really have to embrace when you're teaching with technology, that we're just going to, we're going to fumble around and try something new out and see what we can make of it and see if we can make this useful too us. So uh, I I try to model that going into the classroom. And I say, like, we're going to make podcasts this semester. And I've never done that with students before. And you guys are going to help me work out the kinks. And we're going to play and maybe turn out some wonderful things and maybe some not so good things. And you're going to come away with some skills, but also with uh, knowing what it feels like to try something that you feel really out of your element with. And that will be a a good lesson, even if you never use this tech again. And we're all in it together. (laughs) The three of you wrote a 700 page book together. Laurel, you're going to tell us about some of the technology tools that you used in that endeavor. Yeah, we used so many different types of technologies. We started off with those very traditional ones, you know, word processing software, and we quickly set up a crowdsourcing folder using Dropbox. For our word processing, we used um, Microsoft Word. But Early on, I think one of the key things we did for this 700, yes, it is 700 pages, this book, is we used a mind mapping software called MindMeister. And the thing that was great about doing this is that we quickly realized what needed to go into the book and what didn't need to go into the book. When we talk about technology and social work, we really were thinking about it in two ways. One, how do we use it to teach and train social workers? And the other one was how do we use technology in actual social work practice? And once our mind map got, I bet it had like 150 things on it concept-wise, we decided really quickly that we were going to focus on education only. And so it was a great tool to help us visually think about what we wanted to use in the book. And then we began writing and we put the proposal in and they accepted it. And so we moved on to the different chapters and things like that. And we started meeting by monthly, every other week via a video conferencing software. We started off with GoToMeeting, which was what my institution was using. I was considered the administrative person of the book. So I I organized us. And then we transitioned on into Zoom later on. We started video recording those meetings initially. So we thought, oh, it'd be great. We can capture everything and we can go back and look at them. We never did. So we quit (laughs) doing that because who really wants to see a video of themselves in a video meeting? Nobody wants to hear it, see that. So we stopped doing that. But we now consistently even continue to meet this way as we work on other projects. 
We are working on other articles and other things that we're doing. And so we just have it in our calendars. It's it's there every two weeks. So sometimes we um, met a little, little bit longer than our hour and a half, sometimes a little bit less. Some people came early. Sometimes we had to skip occasionally depending on what we were doing. But that really worked out well for us. And I continue to use that with other colleagues, which is probably one of my favorite things. And we truly built a relationship when you can talk to each other and see each other. And I think one of my favorite things was later on in the meetings when Melanie took her new job at the University at Buffalo and we were all on Zoom. And I said, well, hey, I got to go. Do you guys want to stay on Zoom? And Nancy said, no, I think I can walk down the hall and talk to (laughs) Melanie. So... And so real quickly, to not to belabor this, some of the other tech that we used, we did use a Qualtrics survey instrument to initially crowdsource some information in our book. Part of our book includes a very hefty assignment compendium. We have over 50 different assignments grounded in technology, all the way from using Twitter to using Google Docs to using Second Life. And we used Qualtrics to collect that information from folks. We also crowdsourced some information using Google Docs and Twitter. When we had questions, we couldn't quite figure out what we were wanting to do. We decided to go out to our community, our online community that we had built up online. So we sent out tweets. We have a couple of listservs in social work. We sent out email notifications and people responded. And when we came to writing a few things, we used Google Docs in a very specific way to help crowdsource some of that information. Anytime we got stuck, we'd send out tweets to get sort of case study ideas and things like that. And I think then the other thing that we use technology for in a very creative way, and I'm going to credit Nancy for this because it was really her idea, is we've used Creative Commons license with some of the content that we didn't necessarily want the publisher to have complete control over. So we would put it on my blog using a Creative Commons license, and then we in turn gave permission for the publisher to use that information. And so if folks aren't familiar with Creative Commons, this is an online copyright process that you can use. You can put this on anything. And my blog contains a Creative Commons license for everything. So it was a really nice way to help manage some of the content. I will say, too, that we also did a lot of conference presentations around the work as we were writing the book. And so while we were at conferences, we encouraged people to tweet what we were talking about. We wrote blog posts about every conference presentation and put that on my blog using SlideShare to share the slides and QR codes as well to get people quick access to that information. So I think that's most of the tech. Am I missing anything, Melanie or Nancy? Group ME, we have a, oh. a texting group. It's Group ME is, is an app that lets you create groups of people to connect, and you just have to send it to one number instead of sending it to a whole bunch of emails. And mm-hmm. so we have that now to sort of stay connected. And then when we all went to Dublin for a conference, a lot, of, a lot of the social work tech people, we ended up setting up a temporary Group ME there just as a way of everybody connecting and was just a nice, simple way to to keep out of email, which, you know, can be a sinkhole. I appreciate what you're saying about the temporariness of those things, because I was thinking about 
though sometimes those things we start meeting and we don't really have a reason to meet anymore and so but we're still doing it we just kind of get locked into that but it sounds like you have just this constant entrepreneurship that keeps that going that it's valuable for all of you and yeah. but that this temporary group me also says you know this is just for this time for this season we'll need to because we're in Dublin we can connect here but that that needs to go away so that you don't just have the constant distractions as well Right. We decided we really liked working together and we're a pretty good work team. Like Laurel is really good at keeping us organized and on task and together. And Nancy, just like she's got all this really rich background and brings uh, so many interdisciplinary perspectives to our work. And I don't, I don't know what I do. I just, I just say, let's do something else. Let's do one more thing. (laughs) Incredible creativity (laughs) and the titles too, right? (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, so we did some things meaningfully as we started writing the book. We said, you know, we are in spaces and academic spaces that really demand that we do kind of more traditional academic publishing. And this book will be fun to do, but uh, it's not going to give me tenure. So how can we use some of the things that we've spent a lot of time thinking about to move it to the next phase of, of working toward those more academic publications? And so we just said, like, let's let's hold our schedules together to keep doing that every two weeks so that we can move on to build upon that work in different kinds of ways. And this was really important to keep a calendar date on the Dean's schedule because she gets booked up very far in advance. And if, if we want to keep collaborating, we need to keep a dot on her calendar. Yes. As soon as the book was done, my assistant was asking, okay, can I have that time slot now? <laughs> I'm like, no, it needs to stay there. <laughs> Before we go on to the recommendation segment, I certainly don't want to miss out on asking each of you, starting with Nancy, about the digital technology that you're using or, Nancy, your faculty are using in teaching social work. Yeah, well, you know, our faculty are all over the map on this, honestly, because we've tried not to force people to use technology if they don't want to. In fact, you know, we we have online degree programs here, master's in social work and now a, a practice doctorate. And there are faculty who declared that pigs would fly before they would teach online. And actually, pigs are flying now because it turns out some of those folks are now teaching online. But people really are are all over. Some are approaching things a little more traditionally with with videos and, you know, discussion boards. And then we have people who are much more comfortable moving into doing connected learning communities where people are practicing things together in live video and in chats and where students are bringing in new things that they've discovered and faculty are learning from them. It's less about the actual tech, although I, I will say that we're in our, our new DSW program, we're actually moving into virtual reality and experimenting with that. And I'd love to tell you more about that, but honestly, we're figuring it out even as we speak. We'll probably in the next two weeks be going in together, the faculty, and testing out a, a virtual reality classroom And this will be a way for us to keep our students, and it's not a large program, it's 15 students, but will keep us connected together with a sense of presence and connection in a much better way than I think some other technologies will allow us to do. But we're also hoping that the students can then get a sense for how these technologies might be used in social work practice as they develop their expertise. But if I told you that that was, um, I can't tell you that's not working well. We haven't started it. We're literally launching it even as we speak because Oculus shifted from the Go to a newer model whose name I can't remember. And we're moving in with a new model because it's supposed to be an easier one for students to learn with. 
as of today, which we are recording this before, well before this is actually going to air, there is an episode that will have aired by the time people are hearing our voices, episode number 270 with Jamie Hanans. Sorry, Jamie, if I got that last name wrong. And it's wonderful looking at some of the work that the California State University is doing. So I think you're going to love that one. Nancy. <laughs> great oh, time I for... I just wrote that down on my to-do list. And then I also know a lot of faculty here will be excited to have a chance to listen to that. What I love about what Jamie does on the episode, which is very much what you all are doing right now, is she can really speak and challenge us with the theoretical and the principles, but then she can also go down to brass tacks and be like, this is the tool. This is how it works. This is what you need. Here's how much it costs. Like it's, it's um, wonderful, more holistic, but also down to like, okay, now that we have the holistic, how do we actually do something with this, with these ideas? So I think you're going to love that one. So I'm excited. All right. So other technology tools you're using in your teaching, should we go to Melanie next? Sure. I've become a big fan of Flipgrid. And I, I know that you've, you've done whole episodes around Flipgrid too. And I think they market themselves mostly as a K-12 product, but it just works really well in the college classroom as a replacement for traditional discussion boards, which I think hardly ever work really well. <laughs> so I've just had students who have reported to me that they got all kinds of unintended benefits out of using Flipgrid, like being able to give a good elevator pitch and getting more comfortable with talking out loud or telling uh, about what they what the main points of an idea is more succinctly. So it's just basically a real easy to use video tool and app where students can record a discussion board via a video and voice instead of typing it all out. And Laurel, how about you? Well, Melanie stole mine, Flipgrid, but I will say that we've been using, Melanie and I have been using Marco Polo as a way to communicate. And Marco Polo is an asynchronous app that you can share videos. People can watch it, but can't actually speak to you while you're videoing. And uh, Melanie and I use this with one of our colleagues, Ellen Bellamy, to create a conference presentation, which was a lot of fun because we couldn't find a time to meet. But my standard go-to tech that I use in the classroom is always going to be Twitter. I had such wonderful experiences with students early on, and I continue to use it in almost every class that I teach. And I ask students to be vulnerable and lean in and work on setting up a profile on Twitter. I ask them to create those public Twitter lists around a particular topic that they're interested in. So if I have a social worker who's interested in child welfare, they might create a, a list of agencies and people interested in child welfare. And I also ask my students to participate in Twitter chats. And there are several social work Twitter chats that are available, and they can communicate with professionals, with other social workers, other social work students around the country and around the world. And I've just found it to be a really easy tool to get them thinking about their professional presence, a professional identity, and really learning what's out there in the community before they actually get into their practice or practice semesters. You've each shared some interesting tools, and we're going to continue along those things, although perhaps not around technology. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And Melanie, we're going to start with you. What do you have to recommend today? All right. 
I am going to recommend a Nespresso machine. <laughs> I, I just got a, my espresso maker and, you know, I had, they had one in the hotel room at the conference we went to last year in Dublin and the coffee was so good. And I've just been thinking about it for a year and it felt too indulgent. And finally I found one on sale and I just convinced myself that like, if I can be indulgent in a, um, in a way that doesn't harm me too much. And, you know, it's just really not over the top to enjoy a pretty nice glass of coffee now and then. So I'm really um, feeling good about biting the bullets on the espresso maker right now. And I guess my message is, you know, like, don't undermine the idea of a little indulgent self-care. We all need a little of that. Spoken like a true social worker. <laughs> I love it. All right, Nancy, what do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I'm going to recommend a podcast for people who have problems sleeping. You know, one of the, the downsides for me of my job and the many pieces is sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and, you know, then you start thinking about things. I can't get back to sleep easily. This podcast is called Sleep With Me which sounds a little racy, but it's not. And it's really just uh, bedtime stories to help grownups fall asleep at night. I think he says in the deep, dark night. But mostly it's a guy who go, he goes by the name of Scooter, and he tells you stories in a very circuitous monotone. And it's the perfect thing to listen to that doesn't make, make you so interested that you want to keep listening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kind of person, if they were at a party telling you a story, you might be nodding off. So it's been a lifesaver for me recently. I'll have it going sort of low. I, I, I play it through my Alexa device, but you could just play it off of a phone. And then it can actually move through the entire you know, list of episodes. If you're having problems sleeping, you could get through many of them in a particular night. I'm trying to picture this. I'm so curious now. I'm going to have to go check that out. All you right. Just, just sleep with me. It'll come up. <laughs> well, Laurel, what do you have to recommend for us today? Well, I'm going to take a slightly different turn, and I'm going to recommend the book that Melanie, Nancy, and I wrote, which is called Teaching Social Work with Digital Technology. And I'm going to recommend this on behalf of all of the people who contributed to this book, who wrote with us and supported us along the way. There are numerous people who provided case studies, who contributed their assignments, and it's a book that we really feel like the community help the community of um, hashtag social work technology helped us write. And it's not just for social workers, even though we have a social work perspective on it. If anybody is teaching anything via technology, there is something in there for everybody. Thank you, Laurel. And uh, I am going to take the last recommendation this time. One of the things that's come up on the podcast before is that there is no such thing as not being political. Having said that, I am not endorsing a candidate at this moment. I am going to share an article that has to do with Elizabeth Warren, but not her necessarily as a political candidate, although there's elements of that, but her as a professor. So David Gublar had on August the 7th, I'm going to link to this tweet thread that he has. He's linking to an article on thecut.com called Talking Teaching with Elizabeth Warren. But he he's read it and just dissected it. And I'm going to read a little bit of what he had to say. I want to urge you, I'm quoting him now, I want to urge you to read R. Traster's extraordinary piece on Elizabeth Warren as a professor. If you, like me, are very interested in both the future of this country and the discipline of teaching and learning, it's more than worth your time. And he just goes on. One of the things, it's not surprising that when she taught in law school that she used the Socratic method. 
But it goes really beyond that of which ways has the Socratic method been weaponized to continue to have systemic racism in our classrooms and to have discrimination in our classrooms and that she thought so deeply about that. And while on the surface level, you could say, oh, what she's doing there is the Socratic method. If you go a little deeper for her, she had a TA, for example, who was set up to make sure that she was calling on students who hadn't spoke very much in class. So while she did use that in general terms, she's, she's using it as a means for advancing social justice and for her making sure people got a voice that didn't otherwise have one. So it's just so much fun, whether or not you you are team Warren in this presidential election, or whether you just want to think deeply about teaching and the approaches that we take. It's a great read, both the article as well as David Gublar's tweets about it. I just, it was so funny because I was so tired when I was reading it, but I couldn't turn off the thing because I was like, he's so good, has so much richness in what he had to say. I highly recommend this to anyone listening. And I want to thank the three of you for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. It's so nice to get to spend this time with you and to have you sharing in the community this way. Thank you. For thank you, Bonnie. Us. We're super grateful. Like I said, I'm a big fan and it's so fun to be on the podcast that I've been recommending to all my friends for the last year. So thanks I am, again. I am grateful. Thank you, Bonnie. Well. What an absolute joy it was today to get to speak to Melanie Sage, Nancy Smith, and Laurel Iverson Hitchcock. Thanks to all three of you for sharing about how you wrote a book with people you met on Twitter about collaboration, about teaching, and about creativity. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I enjoyed having each one of you listen. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. You picked a good one to listen to. And if you want to subscribe to our weekly updates and haven't done so yet, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash update. Nope, it's teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Ooh, my brain is going a mile a minute after talking to these three women. So teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe, and you can get the show notes and a weekly update and stay plugged in with Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye.